He speaks, Jesus in, in Luke 18, about the, the widow who went to pray. At the end of it, Jesus says, God will bring justice. Keep crying out to him. It may be that he brings the justice and we're crying out to him until after we die. And we find in, at the end, in Revelation that the saints are under, under the altar crying out to God to bring out justice. But what Jesus said was, he will bring justice and quickly. It's just his quickly isn't always the same as ours. So what the writer, the pr preacher here says, he says, God's sovereign. He will bring justice. But he says the second thing about the injustice in verse 18. He says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. This one is, on the one hand, doesn't sound quite as encouraging, right? Because he's saying that God loves us enough to bring sanity to us, that he wants to remind us that he's God and, and, and that we're not. You know, we don't like, we don't tend to like to be reminded of our smallness and our, our finiteness, do we? But he says, God, you know, sometimes God brings us injustice to just remind us that we're not like, you know, the, the mutant characters in the, in the Marvel comics with superhuman powers. We're not superhuman, we're human. And we're finite. We're the creatures and God's the, the creator. And it's healthy for us to, to remember that and, and embrace it and to rely on the Lord and just be faithful. He says, rejoice in the work that he's given us. But there's not only this injustice, there's also oppression. And he begins chapter 4 by talking about, he says, again, I saw all the, all the oppressions that are done under the sun. That's a lot of oppressions. And he says, look, the, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. That's, that's this refrain that he repeats. There was no one to comfort them. And it's this idea of isolation, a lack of companionship. Now, I want to brace yourself, because as we go through chapter 4, he never, he never mentions God in, in chapter 4. But this is God's word given to us by the, by the Spirit of God, so he's, he'll still minister to us. But he saw back then that the world was rife with oppression. And it was then, and it still is now. I mean, in, in China, in Western China, they're, they're oppressing Muslims by putting them in concentration camps. Sorry, they call them education camps. That's the communist term. Con education camps, work camps. Not long ago, ISIS was killing many, beheading, crucifying Christians in Syria. In Nigeria, Boko Haram has been kidnapping and killing Christians. The, the Christians who live in Nigeria are really concerned because they don't see their government protecting them. You know, in, in our own country, actually in our own city, there's human trafficking going on. There's oppression. It's, it's modern-day slavery. You know, there are marriages where there's oppression. There, there are families there, that, where there's oppression. And it can make you feel very alone when you're being oppressed, can't it? That's, that's what he's talking about, these voices crying out. Gee, and, and what he says is, the preacher, he says, injustice was intended by God to remind us that we're going to die like the beasts. Here he tells us oppression is so bad that, he says, 
it'd be better to be dead. He said, better yet, it'd be better to not even be born. Now that, it's pretty discouraging, isn't it? It doesn't sound very uplifting. You know, something I thought about this week, this has been Sanctity of Life Week. It used to be a Sunday, now it's kind of a week. Uh, and it, as we consider Sanctity of Life Week, we, it, it occurred to me, you know, I, I can at least consider that in that oppression that involves abortion, even in that, God works mercy on those children who don't have to live in the oppression of this world. That doesn't make it a good thing. But God can take evil and use it for his good. God is never confounded. Jesus, Jesus understands the, the oppression and, the, and, and what it brings. He, the, the Pharisees were, were the oppressors in their day. And in, in Mark 11, so the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And that word sighed deeply is, is the, the same Greek word groan that we talked about in Romans 8. Romans 8 says all the creation groans because he subjected it to futility. The same vanity that we read about in uh, Ecclesiastes. The creation groans. And then it goes on to say, and we who have received, the, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. If we're Christians, it says we groan. And then a little bit later, in affirming that, that God understands, it says we don't even know how to pray sometimes because, because the just the nature of the frustration, the futility of, of how life can feel. But he says, the Spirit intercedes for us groaning. In words, the Spirit understands the groaning. Jesus, in this passage, Jesus was groaning as he was living with and seeing the brokenness of this world and the oppression that was going on. So <clears throat> you're not alone when he says they have no comforter. Part of what it tells us is we are not alone. He was looking at world just the world just under the sun. But when even though it says twice, no comforter, Jesus told us right before he left, the night, the, the day before he was went to trial, and a couple days before he died, he says, the helper, the comforter, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and he'll remember, bring to remembrance everything I've said to you, that he was going to send a comforter. And you know what Jesus said the consequence that was? He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Under, under the sun is all you have is oppression, and it gives you no hope. He says, I don't give you that kind, give you like that. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. There's, there's a, a comforter that's sent to be with us. So Jesus groaned under this oppression, and he sends us a comforter. So although Koheleth, the preacher, has this sense of, of having no comfort, we know that because of what Jesus has done, that you have access to a comforter that he sent who's always with you. What's the last thing Jesus said? Well, I will be with you always. Of course, in the Greek, that means all the time. <laughs> Always. Always. There's not a millisecond of a day that he's not with you. Even amidst the oppression that's continued for the last 2,000 years, the comforter is with God's people. The next passage talks about 
isolation that comes from, he talks about envy that fuels ambition. Listen to what he says in verses 4 through 6. He says, then I saw that all toil and skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So there's this idea that he says, he, he's arguing that you know, an awful lot of what we see is work and industriousness and skill that's acquired. It's really just because of envy of other people. And this is right after he's talked about in, in our work, you know, we should just rejoice in our work because that's our lot. He says on the flip side, you have people who don't rejoice in their work. They're just, they're just working because they want to outdo everybody else. They want what other people have. You know, and, and that you know, never creates companionship. That creates rivalry, right? And then he says, well, what, how, what do we do in response to that? Well, he said, on the one hand, you got the fool, verse 5, who, who folds his hands. Now, in the Bible... In the wisdom literature, you see it throughout Proverbs, whenever it talks about somebody folding their hands, basically means they're being lazy. They're just kind of sitting back, folding their hands and sitting back, doing nothing. Because when your hands are folded, what can you do with your hands? Not much, right? The, the idea is, and, and this is an extreme statement. What does it mean? He folds his hand and eats his flesh. What it means is he folds his hands and he's so lazy that he's got nothing. A, he's got nothing to give to anybody else, but B, he doesn't even have anything to give to himself, and he gets so desperate that ultimately, it's kind of like when some of the sieges you read about in, the, in old warfare, that people, they would were in siege and they would literally start to eat their own flesh. He's just saying being lazy is, not, is being so self-focused that it hates your neighbor. You don't have enough for yourself, let alone to take care of somebody else. On the flip side, though, he talks about busyness. This two hands full of toil. On one hand, the guy is holding his hands. On the other hand, he talks about somebody who's got two hands that are so full of toil, that are just working so hard out of this envy, and they don't really have the capacity to serve other people as well. And so he, he, he gives this middle ground. He says, better is a handful of quietness. And the word quietness is, is this idea of peace, peace of mind, of kind of a calmness of soul. And it's just what Paul was writing about when Paul wrote to Timothy. And he said, godliness with contentment is a great gain. And the word literally is profit. It's a great profit. The profit comes from contentment. He says, "Because for we brought nothing into the world. And we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. In other words, just having one handful and being able to be content allows you to be, serve other people. If you've got two hands, if, you, if you're too busy trying to get, get your two hands full and have all this toil, you're not going to be able to think of others. So you get isolated by, with envy that fuels ambition. The third isolation he talks about, I'm going to call Scrooge isolation. It's verses 7 and 8. He says, verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. See, he's describing Scrooge. We just, you know, we just finished Christmas and every, I don't know how many of you, everybody, you got to see a Christmas carol once a, once a 
during the season. And we, we talk about Scrooge. Well, what's the issue of Scrooge? He's alone. Why is he alone? Because he's so fixated, he's so captivated with what? Making his money, getting rich, acquiring. He has the, the one flashback where he sees uh, his, who, the, the woman he was engaged to. He was ready to be, get married. And she said, I can see that your business means everything to you. And he says, fine, we can break the engagement. You know, his, his, uh, his nephew comes to him, and, and he just puts him off. He, even, he's even isolated. You know, Bob Cratchit sits in the front, and, uh, front office and works, but he's totally isolated from him in the business because Scrooge is so consumed with making money and acquiring that he's oblivious to other people. Money's not the root of all evil, according to the Bible. The Bible says the love of money is, is the root of all evil. It's always about the heart. Now, before you hear this and say, well, you know, that, that one's not me. I can, I can sit this point out. You know, consider that the, the writer, Kohela, the preacher, he's, he's using overstatement to paint a picture of what can happen in a lot of lesser degrees, too. You know, to, to what degree do you get wrapped up in tasks? What kind of things so consume you in your world that the effect is to shut out relationships? to not connect with people, to not serve uh, and get in other people's lives. And, and what Kohelet does is he goes into what I call a, a wisdom rant, uh, where, he, where he talks about the value of, of companionship. Five times he uses the word one in verses 8 through 12. And he uses some examples, particularly in travel, about how traveling in numbers is better than being alone. You don't want to be isolated. You want to have a companion. In verse 9 he says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. In other words, get a partner to work with because you're probably going to produce more. And if you have somebody, now again, it's kind of like Proverbs. These are broad generalities. You can also pick a bad partner <laughs> and feel much more isolated even though you have a partner. In verse 10, he says, for if they fall... One will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. This is a travel reference. It was not in, unusual for them to, to, as they would be out traveling, there were ditches and ravines. They didn't have paved sidewalks like we did. They'd be traveling paths and uh, you could fall into a pit. We think we sang about falling into a pit today. That you could, it, they, they, this was something that was always on their mind. I was, I was reading this morning and in Matthew, my, my reading, it talked about falling into a pit. It was very common. And he says, if you fall into a ditch, you fall into a ravine, you fall into a pit by, and you're by yourself, you're in trouble, right? Verse 11, he says, again, if, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Again, in travel in that day, it was very cold at night, and if they had a multi-day travel, they would you know, share a blanket and, and stamp against each other to be warm. Now, like we've talked about in our Sunday school class, in our, in our day and age, in our society, they tend to over-sexualize everything. That wasn't the case. I remember te reading Team of Rivals by Doris Goodwin, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. She was talking about Abraham Lincoln and, and, and how he built his cabinet of all these people who are rivals with each other. But in the first part of the story, she talked about him growing up as a lawyer, as a young lawyer. And what the lawyers did back then, they didn't sit in their town and, and hang up a shingle. They went around, they would follow the judge, and the judge would go around the circuit to different towns 
and spend a day in each town or a day or two in each town. And so the lawyers would follow the judge, and that's how they'd get their business. So he'd go to the town where the judge is and, and represent the people that were there. And so the different lawyers, they just got to be good friends because they were just always competing with each other, going around from town to town. And a lot of times, as she described, they, they would go, they'd go to a boarding house, and the boarding house would have a bed, and they'd just have to share the bed. And she remarked, this was, I don't know, what, 10 years ago she wrote the book? She, you know, she remarked, you know, there was nothing sexual about it, even though in our society people kind of cringe at something like that. That was just what you did. They got to be good friends. They would write letters to each other that were, you know, deeply talking about their friendship. But, but that's what the writer here is talking about. You, you, you can keep warmer with two people than with one person. Then he goes on to verse 12. He says, again, a man might prevail against one who's alone, Two will withstand him. A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. And this is talking about getting accosted when you're traveling. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? What happened? He was traveling and he got robbed. He got beaten. He says a man might prevail against one who's alone. But if you've got two people, you're less likely to get robbed and beaten and mugged when you're out on the, when you're out on the path between the cities. Now, I know some of you all have had this read in your weddings, but it's not talking about marriage. It's talking about traveling. Now, it's, the principle still applies. Okay? It's a transferable concept. Uh, the, 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 the idea of the threefold cord, it's, it's just a, um, it's a poetic device they would use in Hebrew poetry. God, remember, God would say, there are six things I have against you, seven sins I hold against you. It's just saying there's a whole lot here. There's, there's, you know, it's the, the three is just kind of compounding the two, the idea. But again, it's this, this idea that, that God did design us for companionship. I mean, for all eternity, God's never been isolated. God has never been alone. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all there together. God's never been alone. And for us, to, he, he's designed us, made in his image, to be connected with people. And that's why we emphasize our community groups because we, we need each other. God's divine, designed the church not to be people that he individually saves. It's that we're, we're a community. You know, if, if you're not married, for example, it's a good opportunity to connect with people and to be in a community group, to be in the church family. And if you're married, you know, as a couple, consider, you know, inviting some unmarried men or women to, to just share life together in your home. Maybe somebody's not married or somebody's divorced or widowed. We want to be aware of connecting with each other. And again, the beautiful picture that we talked about even in the last point is that God never leaves us alone. If you're a Christian, even in those times when you're by yourself physically, you're never alone. You may feel alone, but you're not alone. That's faith. You don't see it, you don't feel it, but but it's true, it's a promise. He says, lo, I'll be with you always. The word fellowship that we talk about, koinonia, it, really, it means partnership. God's your partner, he's not going to leave you alone. The last thing we see here is that it's lonely at the top, too. He has a story about two kings. He says in verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, and though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun. 
along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. He's got these two kings. The first king is old and he's not wise. And basically he, it, it reminds us of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, uh, who became the king. And instead he had all these old, uh, advisors who were old and wise advise his father. And he cut out his advisors. Now this, he, he still had King. He still took advisors, but it was his buddies who, who were young like him and didn't necessarily know as much, didn't have experience. This king that he's talking about is old and not wise, and he's quit listening to everybody. I mean, he's isolated. He's alone. Then he talks about the second king, this younger king, who almost kind of reminds us of Joseph, although there's definitely differences because Joseph didn't necessarily start out poor. Uh, but he, he, he went from being poor, from being in prison, to becoming the king. And yet in the same twist that the writer of Ecclesiastes keeps using, he says, you know, the irony is, even though the younger king had all these people following him, and he was better off than the older king, he was wise. Give him a few generations, nobody remembered him either. So that's vanity. He said it's, it's lonely at the top as well. So how do, we, how do we tile this together? I mean, you've gone through this sweet chapter, no, no mention of, of God in the, in the whole chapter. But, you know, the, like I said in the beginning, the fracture of relationships happened back in, in Genesis 3 when man was isolated from God. And, that, and that's the beginning of the isolation. And the, the, the sin, which we call the fall, which brought about God's curse, the, the isolation that came from it, and, and this... Koheleth is describing the pain of the curse, the isolation that goes on. And God didn't leave things that way. But what God did was he, he, he entered in to this broken world. Okay, he entered in. God, God came to, Jesus came to live underneath the curse, that he himself was subject to the curse. He was feeling the injustice. He got to taste the impression, and he still trusted his father like he calls us to do, and then he died. He was killed because of it, but the, and he, he died in our place. You know, he died the death we deserve. The irony, though, is what? Jesus died alone, didn't he? He was abandoned. All his friends left him. Peter said, they're all going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. Of course, famously, Peter denied him three times. God, the Father, who Jesus had been with from all eternity, God left him. Jesus was hanging on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time he calls him God. He couldn't even call him Father because they were separated in that moment because Jesus was receiving uh, the, the judgment that you and I deserve and Jesus was separated from God Jesus was isolated and made alone so that all those who put faith in him would never ever be alone that you would have that comforter that he's promised that he sends his spirit to dwell in us and that he's present with us unceasingly if your faith is in Christ 
And unlike the young king at the end of that passage, who they said was going to be forgotten, King Jesus never going to be forgotten. His work and his world are without end. Uh, we're we're going to close our worship. We're going to sing a worship the king, but it's the King Jesus. It's not either of these kings at the end of the story. It's King Jesus. But I want you to see this, this last this stanza that's in the song that just so fits Ecclesiastes 4. It says, frail children of dust and feeble as frail. In thee, Jesus, do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end. Our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Let me pray, and then we'll close singing that. Our Father, we thank you that everybody here at some point has tasted the, the isolation that comes with life. Maybe we've had injustice. Maybe we've been under some kind of oppression. Maybe it's been our work has so consumed us, it's cut us off from other people. Maybe some of us have been in positions where we're at the top. I think of my, my friend Jerry Gutierrez in Washington, D.C. would go to the ambassadors and the embassies who were just de deeply lonely because they were at the top, left by themselves. Lord, but we, we thank you that you have given us promises, and you followed through on the promises, that if we put our trust in you, you will never leave us or forsake us that you would send your comforter to be with us. So help us to believe that. If there's anybody here, Father, who has not done that, that they would put their trust in you this morning, that you'd be our king as well as our savior and our companion. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.